0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with branding designers Greg Hahn and Ryan Moore about their process when working with clients such as Netflix and MoMA.
1: Our approach is very much about boiling down, crystallizing into a simple statement. Here's Debbie
2: Millman. When it comes to communicating who you are as a person, nothing works faster than a picture. The same goes for companies. The problem is, how can a single image communicate the complexity of an individual or of a company? It can't really. What a great image can do is create an idea about who you are. And the better the image, the clearer the idea. Greg Hahn and Ryan Moore work at Gretel and express the personality of their clients as clearly and elegantly as possible. Their work can be seen from the rebranding of Netflix to the IFC Channel, the New York Times Magazine, to MoMA, and more. Today I'm going to talk to them about how they do what they do and about their careers. Greg Hahn and Ryan Moore, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Hi there. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
2: Greg, you're a native New Yorker. You now live in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. What borough did you grow up in?
1: I grew up in Manhattan.
2: And you were eight, I understand, when the city court building was built. And I read that it introduced you to modernism, not only the building, but the streetlights, signage and subway entrances as well. And you've said, I'd never seen anything quite like it. And it stuck with me. How do you think it's influenced you?
1: You know, part of it was that they took over the whole block. So They did something that I had never seen in New York before. They took over the street signs. They took over the the stoplights. Everything was designed, and everything was extremely modern, and I had just never seen that kind of expression of it where a whole area was kind of redone with a vision.
2: You had a college internship that led you to CNN, which was your first entry, really, into the world of design, what did you want to do up until that point?
1: Oh, I had no idea. That, that, was, <laughs> that was really the thing at the time. I was either going to move to Atlanta for this internship at CNN, or I was working in kitchens at the time, cooking. So I was going to go to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and work in restaurants down there.
2: And you ended up at CNN.
1: I ended up doing that instead, and, and that turned into a lifetime. Career.
2: What kind of internship did you get? I know that you were making maps of Iraq. You were putting George Bush's head on different collages. But was it a design internship? Or? It was a
1: design internship. and, and How does means... one get
2: a design internship not ever having studied design?
1: Well, part of it was that I had a stepbrother who worked at CNN. So ah, that was a big, that was the a other big way. in for me. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that helped a lot. And it was... You know, it really was rote work that I was doing there. It was not really design work. It was really just an entry for me into the design world. I literally would make maps every time a bomb went off somewhere and, you know, put a dot on the map for where a bomb went off. That was the kind of work that I was doing. So it wasn't really challenging design work, but it got me in and it got me interested.
2: You really then learned the practice of design on the job.
1: Yeah, I learned on the job, you know, there I would say I learned how to work in a professional environment more than I learned about design. I learned about schedules, I learned about having to get work done quickly, efficiently. And later, sort of towards the end of that job, I started really exploring design and really learning what design could do. Meaning that I had the opportunity to design openers for shows and things like that that took a little bit more thought than just cutting out George Bush's head.
2: <laughs> After CNN, you had what I'll call a trifecta of amazing jobs. You worked at MTV, mm-hmm. you worked at VH1, mm-hmm. and you worked at Trollback, and company for Jacob Trollback, one yep. of the great masters in the business. How did you get those jobs with just an internship from CNN in your back pocket, assuming you didn't have other relatives that right. worked in those other companies? Yeah,
1: it was not nepotism all the way through. <laughs> um, yeah, the, I would love to find somewhere the reel that I put together to get the job at VH1, which I literally just saw on an ad board somewhere. I had to really work that reel because it was, you know, it was mostly <laughs> news, it a graphics. So I, I made sort of chapter dividers and i packaged you know the actual cassette that i sent out this was back in the days of betas so and it got enough attention to get me in the door at VH1 and that again it was really a sort of functional job that i had there it wasn't really the most creative job at first but i don't know i would say a year into that job i kind of talked my way into the design team and designing everything that they needed for promoting the network.
2: And then you went to MTV? Exactly. MTV came after back. that. Of those three experiences, what would you say was your most impactful experience or most impactful job? And what was your biggest lesson learned in that time frame?
1: Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, VH1 was such a learning curve for me because I was really seeing, you know, it was New York and incredibly talented designers everywhere I looked. And so I learned a lot of the basics at that point. And that's when I really started reading about design and working with a lot of talented people. So I was getting really up to speed at that point. MTV, I sort of had my feet under me and then I was really experimenting with design. And then by the time I got to Trollback, it was really more like a masterclass in how to conceive and put together a whole brand.
2: What was the biggest thing you learned from Jacob?
1: The thing that was amazing about Jacob was he could walk up to a piece. And these are complicated pieces. There's movement. There's usually many components to any given branding piece that we're working on. So it's not just one thing. But he had a really distinct ability to identify what was working and what wasn't at a glance. And even if I was doing something that I thought was incredibly slow moving, he'd say, make it slower, you know. He didn't back off something just because it wasn't eye-catching. He would really want to go for what was the heart of the piece, and he could identify that really easily.
2: In 2005, you founded Gretel. What made you decide to start your own company?
1: Founding the company was really inevitable. I mean, it just felt like something that I would do. Having worked at Trollback for years and worked at a few of the shops around town, I got a pretty good sense of the kind of studio that I wanted to have. I knew the culture that I wanted to develop. um, So, and I felt confident that that I could make all of that happen.
2: You started Gretel with a little more than a laptop in your living room. Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And you turned down the first project you were offered, which was, ironically, from VH1. Why, Why did you turn down a job from VH1, especially when they were your former employer?
1: Yeah. The the scope of the job and and the money. It really wasn't... But you
2: weren't making any money. <laughs> <I wasn't, laughs> it was pretty but, ballsy.
1: But it also, you know, you have to be realistic about the business that you're creating and you have to set some goals for yourself. And to be honest, I, I just didn't think I could do a great job on it for the money that they had because I would have had to spread myself too thin. So it made a lot of sense to say no. Uh, it was hard, but it led to them calling back a month later with a much bigger project. And I think, you know, that's part of the saying no as well, as establishing who you are and saying, well, this is what I value. This is how much I value my work and my company. And it was really about perception as well and making sure that they saw that I'm not a freelancer with a laptop, even though I was a freelancer with a laptop, but to be seen as a company because I knew that the skills that I have were more valuable than just hiring a freelancer to come in and do some work.
2: You've had no public relations team and no marketing personnel. And I read that for years you didn't even have a reel as an organization. How did you get work?
1: It was really word of mouth. Having worked at MTV, there is really such a great team of people that you meet in a place like that. It's almost like school. I had work to show that I think people had seen and the reputation of working with me and working with my company was that we're really good to work with and easy to work with. And we really try and get our clients and all of that kind of thing. So I think that spoke for itself to some extent. And that really is something that can spread word of mouth.
2: In 2011, you asked Ryan Moore to join as creative director. How did you two first meet?
1: Well, that's kind of funny, actually, because Ryan emailed me and uh, the email apparently went into my, my spam, and I never saw it. And Ryan thankfully followed up a few weeks later and said, hey, did you ever get that email from me? And I got that one, and I wrote him back and said no. <laughs>
2: that was, I, that's great that you wrote him back.
1: Uh, yeah, it was great. It was great, and we met up a couple times, and I was a big fan of his work. And as soon as I met him, I felt like, hey, this is a guy that really has his shit together.
0: Yeah, I think the first time we met was at the coffee shop in Union Square. I picked a place further away from my job at the time, right? Petrified of being spotted with somebody else. Um, Yeah, that was it.
2: Ryan, you grew up in Tiffin, Ohio. That's right. And now also live in Brooklyn in Park Slope. You graduated from the University of Cincinnati. Did you study design?
0: I did. I studied digital design at UC.
2: And I read that you remember being mesmerized by logo animations as a kid and United Artists was your favorite. You described Mm -hmm. it as this big, dramatically lit 3D monolith that rotated and aligned into a perfect 2D logo. (laughs) Sounds like something (laughs) I would say. (laughs) At that point, you had no idea that what you were admiring was work that somebody did as their job and now you have that job. When did you find that out, and when did you decide that you wanted to be a designer?
0: You know, I went to school for design knowing that I wanted to to do something creative um, but probably couldn't be a fine artist. I knew I wasn't that talented. I was always drawn to the computer, I think. Growing up, we, had, uh, we always had Macintoshes in the house, and I would write basic code and do really simple animations. And, and you know, it wasn't until I got to UC and we were doing... Animation and director, macromedia director at the time. I remember director, yes. You could put music in there, and you could do really basic text fading. It was revolutionary. Yeah. I made some really, really bad work and decided that this is what I wanted to do, if I could, for the rest of my life. Yep.
2: You graduated college in 2002, and I believe that your first job was at Andrew Moyer Smith in Pittsburgh?
0: So, right, at UC, you have to do six internships before you can graduate, and each of those are three months long. So you're basically working for a year and a half before you come out which helps you figure out what you might want to do and what you really don't want to do. So one of those internships, well, actually two of those were at Agnew Moyer Smith, which was a great firm, and they did a lot of um, great design work for local cultural clients and for big corporate clients like Steelcase, and they did the McDonald's sandwich manuals, so like illustrating lettuce and the different configurations for all the hamburgers and so forth. But yeah, that was great, and after that I worked for Warner Brothers Pictures here in New York, and that was my first trip to New York City, actually.
2: You freelanced for nearly six years before you took a full-time gig at Leroy and Clarkson, where you worked for eight years. What was the biggest thing you learned there?
0: Right. So the six years, of it's probably a LinkedIn thing. I did freelance for quite a while.
2: It was simultaneous.
0: So yeah, I I freelanced around for a bit, maybe about a year, and then landed Ah. at Leroy working with Daniel Fries, who came from Eyeball and was the creative director at the shooting gallery for a while. And he was starting a company, so I was the first person hired there. As a result, I got a lot of experience and exposure to the whole of the business, not just the creative, but, but how to handle clients and how to sort of phase through different iterations of the company as it went from just he and I and an editor to, I think when I left, there were around 20 people staff or something. Yeah, eight years later.
2: You two have now been working together for five years. What can you each tell me about the other that would surprise me? Greg, you go first.
1: I thought the question was going to end. What can you tell me about the other? (laughs) (laughs) That would be too easy. Something that would surprise you, Ryan is a really good roller skater. There we go. (laughs) Ryan also has a pilot's license and has jumped out of planes. And he's one of these guys who every time you think that you've got something that he's never done before, it turns out he's already done it and potentially is an expert at it. But you would never know because he'll never— mention it unless you bring it up
2: awesome okay ryan your turn
0: all right i'll go for a working answer and a non-working answer um (laughs) you know for a creative director at a place like gretel i'm not sure what the perception is from the outside but we have some pretty high profile clients and you might think that the cd or the founder of the place like that may just kind of pop in and out of meetings and give sort of top level guidance and, and lightly steer the plane but you know greg is in there um, in Photoshop, InDesign, writing and and thinking and sitting in the meetings and pounding his head against the desk along with the rest of us trying to solve problems. And it's got to be greater. It doesn't go out. And then on a personal note, Craig um, has, I think, three motorcycles in various states of being unbuilt and rebuilt sitting in a garage in, in uh, Fort Greene right now. Awesome. That Thank you.
2: Thank you. In, in an article about Gretel in Creative Review, the writer Aporva Baxi stated, Once upon a time, if the glowing box in the living room was on, you had a good chance of knowing what the people on the sofa would be watching. What was on the telly last night was discussed in playgrounds and workplaces across the country. We'd gather round the corner set, and the national grid would register the moment people turned the kettle on in the ad break. Viewing habits were predictable, homogenous, and controlled by just a few parameters. That is no longer the case. How has that impacted what you do in your work?
1: Well, to be honest, in a lot of ways, it hasn't. Um, You know, I think technology changes, viewing habits change, uh, the way people consume all kinds of brands change, but the basic principles of what we do don't change at all. We're really trying to interpret what a brand stands for, what the personality is, and then express it in a number of ways. And I've always kind of stood by the idea that if we are smart and we have great aesthetics and clever solutions that will be relevant And so the technology changing and the way people consume whatever it is, whether it's TV or coffee, it won't really affect the way that we go about our work.
2: You do a lot of work that is seen on a screen or a television set. So you don't feel that this massive shift in viewing habits and viewing behavior impacts the aesthetic at all?
0: I think, logistically, one thing that has changed is the time in which you have to grab someone's attention. Yes. We were looking at, I don't know why, the title sequence to Perfect Strangers uh, the other day, for some reason, and it's like 50 seconds long or something. And you'll never see a TV show nowadays with a main title, hardly at all do you see a main title running before the series premiere of anything. So I think that time that you have to make an impression with someone, either through advertising or in something like an opening sequence for a show, you have to strike them really quickly and grab their attention. They're not really captive in the way that they used to be.
2: It's really incredible when you think about how our attention span has changed. Um, In a recent article in Time magazine titled, You Now Have a Shorter Attention Span Than a Goldfish, um, the article went on to describe that while the average attention span for a goldfish is nine seconds, the average attention span of humans dropped from 12 seconds To eight seconds.
1: I think you just quoted that recently. Yeah, I think I wrote that into a deck.
2: Well, (laughs) that's probably where I found this then. (laughs) How did that happen?
0: I think that's a question for psychologists, maybe. But, you know, I think... um, But you
2: work in the medium. Is this something that you have to... I mean, obviously, you're thinking about the notion of a title going from Mm -hmm. 50 seconds to four seconds. Yep. I recently happened upon a rerun of Cheers on television one evening night when i couldn't sleep and the opening sequence is a song Mm -hmm. it's a whole song you'd never see something like that now would you
1: yeah obviously you still have that effect in movies which is more of a captive audience where you have a song adele might do a song for skyfall and that might actually be a breakout song outside of the the realm of the movie
2: the last time I remember something like that happening was with friends. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think shows themselves are getting shorter and actually cuts in each shot. I think we've, we were looking at something recently, too, for that same project where the average cut in a film from today is something like 30 percent of what it used to be even uh, 10 years
2: ago. You've described the way you work in the following way. A heavy intellectual front end where you're reading and talking and writing. Having a lot of meetings with clients, pinning things to boards, and exhausting yourselves with the thinking. And your goal is always to have thought about it enough that when everyone starts working and playing around with the frames, that it's informed by the thinking without us having to think about it. Mm -hmm. And I've been mulling that since I first read it thinking informed by the thinking without having to think about it. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how that happens over at Gretel.
1: Sure. I mean, it's, it's really about saturation. That's kind of the way that I like to think about it, where we've gone over it and over and over it so that it really is an intuitive process at that point. You don't really have to think intellectually about the decision-making because you're, you're living and breathing the material. So it becomes a more intuitive process.
2: I read that the approach is often baffling to your freelancers who, when sitting in front of their first elaborate cerebral planning session, seem to be wondering, uh, okay, when can we just get out there and start making stuff? So how do you get them involved in that way? How do you bring them on board to this completely different way of approaching the work?
0: Uh, I think – the freelancers that are are continually baffled, if that's happening meeting after meeting, maybe they don't come back. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, it's about finding people who who can work that way. And and certainly with any company, I think finding people who can plug into your model and really help extend um, that thinking and that and sort of embrace that process. It can be a bit of an sort of an onboarding process where it's not so intuitive that you would go and talk about something for two hours without making anything. But I think people who have come back and people who we like working with and certainly that we've hired full-time um, see, the, see the merit in that.
2: And you're about a 15-person firm now, is that right? Yeah, that's right. How would you describe Gretel? Would you describe yourselves as a branding consultancy, a creative firm?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. We've said things like creative studio. It's hard to get away from being a branding studio, which is really the thrust of our work. So at this point, I feel fine with branding agency, branding studio,
2: I want to talk with you about some of your work, some of the actual things you've made. But I do want to ask you first about your approach, about your process, your three-tiered approach. Can you talk a little bit about how you go about making the work?
1: Yeah, I think what you're talking about is the way that we think about brands and the way that the brand gets expressed. And, you know, I don't think this is unique or revolutionary in terms of the way that we look at a brand. Obviously, you come from this world, so you can speak to this. But... There's the core values of the brand, the ethos. What we talk about is the ethos. You could look at it as the heart of the brand. And then there's the personality of the brand, which we refer to as voice, but it's really more than language. It's it's the tone. It's the personality, the attitude of the brand. And then outside of that, there's really the visual identity. It's the last thing that we touch when we're working on a brand. It's really kind of... It's a huge deal because it's the entry point into the brand, but it's really... The results of defining the other two things that I mentioned, the ethos and, and the personality of the brand.
2: One of the things that I read about in looking at your approach was the notion of creating areas of freedom. And as somebody that has worked in branding for as long as I have, I find that that's the thing you have the least amount of when working with big brands, freedom. Most of the companies that I tend to work with are interested in very evolutionary work so that you don't upset the apple cart, so to speak. How do you encourage clients, especially knowing the work that you do, which is really revolutionary, to get out of that safety zone and to go into those areas of freedom?
0: I think for a lot of our clients, they're already wanting to explore and iterate and evolve the brand when they come to us. And part of our challenge is figuring out what pieces should stay or what what new pieces can we put in place so that when they inevitably do start riffing, writing, evolving the toolkit that we give them. Because we're not just giving them finished pieces, we're giving them a framework to build within. We're giving them tools to build their brand and evolve their brand. So assigning some hard and fast rules and regulations, things that cannot change or can only change within a certain tolerance. And then giving them a place to play with language or with design or with imagery or something. Sort of a a springboard and helps them be creative uh, within a framework.
2: Let's talk about a recent project, the work you did for Vice Land, which you are calling the unbrand. Why?
0: Have you seen the, uh, the well, design? Of course, I have. But so, so
2: describe <laughs> uh-huh. it for our listeners. It is very stark. Yep. I don't know that I would call it an unbrand. Yeah, but
1: unbrand is a it's a tricky term. Obviously, anything that speaking for the brand is part of the branding. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could certainly argue it's not an unbrand.
2: Well, because... let's. Let's argue <laughs> about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the gist of it is, is how stripped it is of artifice and decoration. Uh, it's as stripped back as I think we've done. And we've done a lot of very reductive, simple visual identities for brands.
2: Do you happen to like those better or did it just seem to work better for those brands?
1: I mean, I think part of our our approach is very much about boiling down, reducing, uh, crystallizing into a simple statement about a brand. So that general concept, I just think, is is something that we work with all the time. It's just part of our own personal ethos.
0: I think it doesn't need to be visually very, very simple, but I think it's about getting to a core thought that is simple. So even if the solution is really sort of densely layered, it's informed by one very concise thought
2: how would you describe this work to a listener that hadn't seen it?
0: viceland yes I would say picture Helvetica bold, mostly uppercase, mostly in the middle of the screen, and one image, <laughs> and that's kind of every element is built on a really sort of reductive
1: uh, rigid graphic system, yeah, and we had a great mood board at the time that really spoke to us. I think we started with um, I don't know if you've ever seen Repo Man, yes. the movie. Yes, okay. of course. So there's Wasn't
2: one of the Estevis brothers in that, yeah. Martin Sheen? Yeah. No, Emilio, Martin Sheen's son. Emilio, Emilio. Yeah. Emilio, okay.
1: Um, but there's some great scenes where they're in a supermarket and, you know, they get a six-pack of beer and it just says beer on it. Yes. And, you know, Vice has a sort of a punk sensibility. And that really is part of that culture, this kind of very direct, very stripped-down uh, execution. So... On the one end, we had that as inspiration. And then we also were looking at Tom Ford and APC and fashion branding that also embraces this very stark approach. And I think some of the appeal of that was the timelessness. So Tom Ford's work, I think he's not going to have to change his brand anytime soon. It's sort of the Chanel style where it's very simple and it'll last for a long, long time. So we were kind of riding between both of those, and there was sort of a spectrum in between Repo Man and Tom Ford, as you can imagine, that yeah, there we, would be. We were debating
0: like the merits of default and generic versus you know unbranded and unstyled. And even in that narrow range, there's a, there's a pretty big spectrum.
2: This is a question that is more – I'm asking this more out of curiosity than challenge, which it might sound like a challenge question more like than challenges. I want it to be. Um, were you at all worried that your client would look at the work and say, "Isn't this? aren't these the same elements that American apparel use?
1: For me, there wasn't a huge concern about it being – confused with American Apparel because the brands are totally different brands. You know, there's so many other things that Land has to say that American Apparel doesn't say that it's, it's not a worry for me. I mean, there's times, well, certainly if you look at Helvetica and think about all the different brands that have used it, potentially a lot of those brands have been black and white. You know, are you concerned about confusing them? That's really the question, not does it look similar to something else but does it behave differently does it serve a different function and does the brand have enough meat to it that it distinguishes itself and that was not a concern with Viceland at all
2: I do think that the best brand expressions tend to be ones that have a sort of magical element of soul which I do believe exists in the Viceland work which I think is part of what makes it so riveting I think it's gorgeous gorgeous work thank you um, let's talk about Nick Jr. Um, Ryan, I read that in the early stages of the pitch, you happened upon an article in the New York Times during your train ride home about a new method for teaching math to kids in grade school, which was developed by a mathematician, uh, named John Mighton. And this involves guiding students towards the brink of discovery but letting them make their own knowledge breakthroughs. And Meiton called this process guided discovery. That phrase resonated with you and ended up becoming the cornerstone of your pitch to the network and ultimately the entire rebrand. Can you describe the way in which the notion of guiding people to the brink of discovery was embedded in the work that you did? I find that incredibly fascinating.
0: Yeah, that was such a fun pitch because the demographic of the network is preschoolers, which is very different, as you can imagine, to a lot of our typical audiences. That really struck a chord with me because we were laying out frames that had to bring together all these different characters from the different shows. And this idea of guided discovery immediately sparked in my mind this vision of a path or of a connected series of roads, an interconnected series of roads that were leading around corners and through holes and You know, through swivelly doors. And if you look at the work, you can see some of that. But it really became the metaphor for me of learning as a journey, as a pathway. And that pervaded that whole brand system.
2: Do you feel like the notion of leading someone to their own breakthrough is something that has become embedded in other aspects of your work, other projects. I feel like that could be a way of describing some of the work you've done for Netflix, for example, which I want to talk to you about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we really try and lead without giving all the answers. If if we have to give all the answers, A, it's no fun for us, and it's no fun for the people that are working with us. But we definitely come up with the guardrails, and we're really trying to interpret as much as possible, but. You know, we're leading people down a path that we think will be successful, but it's really up to every designer to come up with the solution. Say the pilot, sort of. You could say that we're the pilot. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's nothing better, though, than being surprised by something you hadn't thought of that totally satisfies the parameters that you've laid out.
2: Um, and that's exactly what I think you did with Netflix. Exactly what I think you did. Let's talk about Netflix. First of all, the project was voted by Wired Magazine as one of the best rebranding efforts of 2015. So congratulations for that. My first question is really a simple one. How did such a little studio get such a gigantic global job. You're a 15-person studio. This is a humongous job. You'd think that one of the giant agencies would have gotten it.
1: I don't know if it is part of the culture that we're in. I kind of think that it is. It's a combination of technology and the visibility of smaller firms like ours. But the reality is you can go to a big company. You're still going to get a small team. It's not like you go to a much bigger global branding firm that has you know 2,000 employees you're not getting all of those people working on the job. You're really (laughs) getting... We're
2: going to put a team of 2,000 on this for you.
1: You're probably getting, you know, five to 10 people working on the job. So we have five to 10 people. We've got that covered, you know? (laughs) And I think the advantage is that we're smaller, we're nimble, so they can call us up and me as the owner of the company, I'll hop on a call with somebody at a moment's notice. And if they have a big shift, if something changes for them and they need us to shift. It doesn't have to go through 10 levels of approvals. They're not dealing with client management or anything like that. They're really just dealing with us. So I think the the critical part of it is just that in our 15 people, that we have the right mix of people to do these kind of jobs. And if we didn't, then it would be a miserable experience regardless.
2: You've said that the work translates across all parts of branding, language behavior, type behavior, and motion behavior, and that you tried to create things that can speak and have signature behaviors across any medium. What's a signature behavior, and what did you create for Netflix in this manner?
0: Yeah, I think for Netflix in particular, it was really about codifying what the service is. So thinking about what Netflix is as a brand and how it behaves to the average consumer, um, it is in many ways, a living catalog. You know, I'm sure we've all had the experience of sitting in front of Netflix, deciding what to watch and thumbing through titles, sometimes for longer than you can, you know, <laughs> stay awake watching. Um, but yeah, it's it's really became about selection and curation and about um, implementing this design system we called the stack as a manifestation of those ideas. So that little breakthrough of, okay, it's a, it's a stack. Um, these aren't stripes or bars. These are different titles, different images, different pieces of copy um, zipping through the frame. That sort of opened up the big door um, that became the brand system.
2: Ryan, you stated that what Netflix needed was an idea to stitch everything together, a conceptual approach. Is that what you mean by the stack?
0: Yeah, I think it it has to be flexible enough to work on any platform, and it has to say something about the brand. So I think the stack, it's handsome in execution, if I do say so myself. Um, And it also says something about the brand. So the, the way that it moves in a banner ad or even in a trailer indicates this idea of selection and curation, which is a strategic idea. It's not just um, icing on the cake.
2: At the brand-new conference, I saw your presentation where you talked about how responsive Netflix is on different screens and different viewing habits. Can you talk a little bit about how you created the work to be able to do that so seamlessly and so elegantly?
0: Yeah, I think that was a big mandate from the beginning from the client was that this design system um, had to flex enough to adapt to, I think it was at the time, maybe 50 countries around the world, different agencies in each country making different things, things for buses, things for posters, um, digital ads and all of that. So that was kind of table stakes for the job, coming up with something that could translate seamlessly cross-platform, whether it was interactive or static or in motion. So we knew it had to be a pretty simple idea, but something that was still inspiring and I think to the earlier point about creating areas for freedom that still left the designers some place to play.
2: I very rarely ask this question but I feel that with a company of your size and age it's something that people might want to know. What's next? Where do you see yourselves going? How do you envision your firm in say five or ten years?
1: Yeah we're We're growing right now. It's um, Well, you
2: are the it firm of the moment, no doubt.
1: Thanks for saying that. I didn't know that. It's really funny to have no idea really what the perception is from outside. It's not like other industries where there's a lot of buzz. That's really flattering to hear. So thank you. But, uh, yeah, I think the thing for us, you know, we've come from media. We do a lot of media brands. So we're even right now working on several projects that are not media companies. That's a big goal for us. We really want to be able to do any kind of expression for any brand. So that includes installations and um, interactive work. And that's something that we're working on as well. So there's a ton of room to grow just with that. There's also a lot of interest that we have individually that we want to build into the company. So, for example, we're creating a, a magazine right now. And it's a very small magazine. It's one article per issue. And it'll only come out quarterly, but
2: and is it your own magazine or is it a magazine you've been hired to do for somebody else?
1: No, it's our own. It's our own magazine. Are you calling it Gretel? No, it's called Thing because oh. it's about industrial design. <laughs> I was so, so hoping objects. you were
2: going to say no. It's called Hansel.
1: <laughs> Not yet, but maybe that'll be the the production company. Okay. Um, I'm personally very interested in industrial design, so the idea that we get to do a little magazine about industrial design, and then we get to design the magazine itself. It's like a win-win all around. So for me, there's a lot of goals, a lot of interesting things that can happen in the next few years that may not really fit the normal model of a branding company, but I think that's fine. And so I more think more
2: self-generated work.
1: Self-generated sounds. work that, um, yeah, it's almost like developing our own product for ourselves to brand. Like I said, it's a win-win because it hits a lot of targets for us.
2: Ryan Moore and Greg Hahn, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Debbie.
2: To find out more about Greg Hahn and Ryan Moore and Gretel, check out gretelny.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.